inspired. It shouldn't be in the New Testament or anything like that, but it's still a very interesting one. It's called the Didache. And basically, it's a manual from somewhere in the AD 90s about how to run a church. And it's got sections on what to do with visiting speakers who come to town and want to preach, how you uh, help the poor, um, all sorts of things. And one of the most interesting bits is how you run a communion service. And one of the things that people have never understood about the Didache is that it gives you a blow-by-blow blow account of how you ought to do it, and you have the wine first, and then the bread. So clearly, in the early church, it wasn't, you've got to do one and then the other, you've got to follow the recipe or it's not proper. <laughs> there was a fair variety in the way of doing it, and it's good sometimes to have our expectations uh, arrested and, and made differently. And that's why we're reading from the book of Habakkuk. No, and it's not, no, no, we're not. Okay, let's read from Acts chapter 18 then, shall we? Uh, the first 11 verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius was the Roman emperor. This was AD 49. We know when this happened in history. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. That's great. So this morning, we're talking about Paul going to Corinth, one of the biggest churches he founded, one of the most important. And uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, it's all started in the way he did. Let's just have a look at that. Let's remind ourselves to start with what happened. This is the ancient world from where Paul started out from Antioch. Do you remember? He, weeks ago, he had this uh, disagreement with Barnabas. Barnabas went off to Cyprus, the little island that you see here on the right-hand side. Paul, however, went back into Cilicia, the kind of uh, country he'd come from. He was born in Tarsus, if you remember, and the place where he'd planted lots of churches with Barnabas. And there he spent some time strengthening and encouraging the churches. He had Silas with him. He picked up Timothy on the way around uh, Turkey. And he was puzzled about what God wanted. I think he'd gone there thinking, well, now we're going to evangelize the rest of Turkey, aren't we? And the Holy Spirit said to him, we're not sure how, maybe through Silas, who was a prophet, but the Holy Spirit said, nah, nah, nah. you cannot preach the gospel in the province of Asia. So he thought, okay, let's go north. Let's go to northern Turkey, Bithynia, those kinds of places. And he went up there and found that the Spirit prevented them from going into Bithynia. So Paul's starting to get very frustrated and think, what am I supposed to do here? And he's up in Troas, which is a seaport. And that, as you know, is where he has the vision of the man from Macedonia who says, come over and help us. So he crosses that narrow strip of, of sea and starts evangelizing in Europe. And you've traced the story over the last little while, haven't you? How he went to, first of all, Philippi. 
and then on into Thessalonica, and then to Berea, and in Berea, um, he found that uh, he was more or less thrown out of the city. He was able to leave Timothy and Silas behind, though. So they stayed on in Berea. He went on to Athens. And from Athens, as you can see on the map, it's a very short hop to go to Corinth. And so after he'd finished in Athens, he went on to this city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very different city than any that he'd been in before. And we need to have a look at what Corinth was like. The first thing you've got to say about it, it was an incredibly strong city. You see that great mountain at the back of it there? That's the Acro-Corinth, the hill around which Corinth was built. And the garrison, the citadel, was at the top of that hill. Almost impossible to penetrate if you were an army that was attacking the city. So when there was a war, the citizens would simply climb up the hill and they'd be safe for as long as they wanted. That meant Corinth was a pretty secure place to live in an insecure world. And so because it was a strong city, it was also a very big city. People came from all over the place. And this was a new experience for Paul in some ways. I mean, he was born in Tarsus, which is a relatively small place, and he grew up in Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem in Paul's day was just 10,000 people. That's pretty small. And uh, he went on to uh, other places. He wanted to get to Rome, ultimately, because Rome was the world capital in those days. 350,000 people. Well, that makes it a reasonably sizable city even nowadays, but not a massive one. And that was the biggest place in the world in those days. Uh, the last city that Paul had been in was Athens. And that was a cultural center, educational center, home of philosophy for the last 500 years. But it still had only 28,000 people in it. In Corinth, Paul was hitting the big time for the first time. He'd been in small places like uh, Philippi, uh, Berea, Thessalonica, little towns where everybody more or less knew everybody else. And now he was taking on Corinth, 50,000 strong. That's a big city. And it was, I suppose, in Paul's mind, preparation for the two big places he was going to go to, Ephesus and Rome, the two largest cities of the empire. And this was his first experience of a real urban environment and how the gospel would go down there. It was also a wealthy city because it was a place that was a, a center of trade. That was partly because of the geography. I mean, here's a close-up of where uh, Corinth actually was. And you see, it's in a funny little peninsula bit that's joined onto the rest of Greece by a very narrow neck of land, just four miles wide. And the problem for, for shipping and, and trade in those days was that down at the south of that peninsula, down there at the bottom of the map, it was a very, very dodgy piece of sea. And to travel around there was incredibly difficult. In fact, they used to say that if a sailor tried to get around the Cape of Malia at the bottom there, he should forget all about home because <laughs> he wasn't going back anytime soon. And so going round the bottom was a very, very difficult, laborious exercise. It took ages, too, because in those days, ships used to stay as close to the coast as they could. And you see how in and out it is down the bottom of the map there. And so they all used to sail across the top. Trouble is, you've got four miles of land there. So what do you do? Well, this is Kencrea, the harbour at one side of that little strip of land. And from Kencrea, there was a thing called a Dolkios. And it was a road a stone road with grooves in it for wheels, which ran for four miles across to the other side. And if you were trying to sail past Corinth, what you would do is you'd sail into Kincrea, you'd unload everything off your ship to make it as light as possible, you'd make the crew walk four miles, <laughs> and you'd put everything on the back of some kind of cart, we're not sure exactly what it was that you'd used, that would be transported across, and then you'd put the ship itself 
on a cart, and it will be transported over the doll kiosk for four miles and then launched back into the sea at the other side. And ships were doing that all day long. Now, as a result, obviously, people stayed overnight in Corinth. Uh, it was a big uh, town with two seaports either end of it, and it became a very, very wealthy place indeed. And in fact, in the ancient world, when we've done archaeology uh, and, and, and worked out what was there, we found far more shops in Corinth than in any other city uh, that we've excavated. So it was a real commercial center, this place. Uh, nowadays, of course, there's a canal built in 1893 that cuts right across where the Dolkios used to be. Uh, but as you can see, it's pretty narrow, and not many ships use it. Ships are bigger now anyway. They can go around the bottom without too much trouble. But that's a Fredersen liner, which is going through the Corinth Canal just for the experience. So that, it was a big city. It was a, it was a strong city. It was a, 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 a wealthy city. And also, it was an impersonal kind of a city. Because, you know, when you go to the big city, you can do what you like. People don't know who you are anymore. And if you go to a place like Corinth where you can rise in the world, you can become wealthy, you can do stuff that you couldn't do back at home, then you're tempted to change your standards a little bit. I have never quoted from this guy before, and I probably won't ever again in my life. This is Ernst von Dobschutz. He was a university chancellor, which is why he's wearing fancy dress. Uh, but he was also a very good German theologian, died in 1934. And he said this, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. Those are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and law but his own desires. Corinth was that kind of a place. And as a result, obviously, it was also a notorious city. It was a place w that you went to do things you wouldn't do back at home. Hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> that kind of place. And uh, so it was, it was notorious for that. If, if ever a Corinthian character came on the stage in a Greek drama, he was always clutching a bottle. Uh, Plato used the phrase Corinthian girl to describe what the ladies from there were like. And that's like saying somebody's an Essex girl, only three times worse. And, uh, yeah, it, it was that kind of thing. In fact, there was even a verb in Greek, to Corinthianize, which meant just to give yourself up completely to excess and luxury and do whatever you wanted. And if you read the first, the, the two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you'll find that most of the problems in the church in Corinth come from people saying, I'm going to do it my way. I don't care about other people. This is what I want. And so that's the kind of place Paul had come to. And it wasn't an easy place to go. Now, how do we look at this passage? Well, there are three arrivals in it. First of all, obviously, Paul comes in verse 1. And then you'll notice his friends from Berea, Silas and Timothy, arrive to tell him how the churches are doing in the places that Paul has been thrown out of already. Uh, Thessalonica, Berea, and further up the road, Philippi as well. And they come with gifts from those churches as well. So clearly, they've not only survived, they're grateful, and they want to look after Paul's needs. And then third, finally, at the end of the whole thing, uh, as we've seen already, and if I switch this thing off, I haven't, should keep on clicking it. There we are. The Lord arrives in verse 9, and Paul has an encounter with the Lord Jesus, which is important at the end of the chapter. So let's just look briefly at those three things. First of all, Paul came. And uh, I think there are, there are uh, three things here. I don't know why, I think we've gone too far. There we are. Let's just do one at a time. 
first of all, Paul, uh, for him, this was a new approach. He'd never been in this kind of environment before. He'd never preached in a really big city. And so he was learning as he went along. And it says in, in, in 1 Corinthians that when he came to Corinth in the first place, he came in weakness and in fear with much trembling. This was a new territory for Paul. And uh, at first, he didn't do much. You'll notice he goes back into making tents and stuff like that. And uh, he goes to the synagogue on a Sunday and he preaches, but, but he's not doing all that much. Second, it was a new experience for him. It was an experience of, of doing things in a different way. Because after Athens, where he hadn't really had an awful lot of success, he says to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I resolved to know nothing amongst you except Jesus and him crucified. We're not going to go for a philosophical approach. We're not going to go for something learned. I tried that in Athens, and oh, it was okay. Some people became Christians, but it wasn't really that important. What I'm going to do is cut right to the quick. Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what it's really all about. I tried to build up to it in Athens. It's clever arguments. And then when I got to the resurrection, I went, ah, that's ridiculous. We can't believe that. Because they didn't see the importance of Jesus at the heart of everything. I'm going to start with Jesus. He is the key. And that's one important thing as we go out from here to share the gospel with other people, whether it's in the co-op or wherever it is, focus on Jesus. He's the key to the whole thing. Don't get sidetracked into arguments about creation and evolution or election and predestination or, you know, uh, Christians and homosexuality or any of those side issues. The important thing is to focus on Jesus because if people don't understand Jesus, they don't understand what the whole thing is about. So Paul decided he was going to go for a new kind of approach and have a new experience this time. Third thing, though, is there was a new uncertainty there as well. It says in verse 5 uh, that, 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 that Paul was pressed in the spirit. And he talks in some of his other letters later about what that actually meant. Uh, this is uh, the one we've quoted already. I did not come with eloquence or human uh, wisdom. This is not Athens. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And he says, too, that uh, he didn't have many resources. He had to work and, and make his own money uh, by, by building um, tents with, uh, uh, with, with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. I robbed other churches by receiving report, uh, support from them to give you, he says, and serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, Silas and Timothy, supplied what I needed. So he found himself in a big city, friendless, unknown to everybody, and God sent along Aquila and Priscilla. Now, what are the chances of that? Aquila was born in the north of Turkey. Priscilla was born in Rome. Somehow they'd met and got together, and they'd spent their married life in Rome. And they were Christians already. And then they got thrown out of Rome in AD 49, and they turned up in Corinth. And so Paul wanders up the road from Athens thinking, where am I going? I'm coming into a big city, I've got nowhere to stay, I've got no money, I've got no resources, and suddenly he meets Aquila and Priscilla. What are the chances of that? And God, he sees, is providing for his needs all the way along. So a new approach, new experience, new uncertainty, and God is there. And that's why he can believe Jesus at the end of this encounter when Jesus appears to him and says, look, don't worry, don't be afraid. I've got many people in this city. Nobody's going to attack you because he's already seen God meeting his physical needs. But you know what? God met his emotional needs as well. And that's where the second encounter comes in. Silas and Timothy come down the road. 
And there's a verse, verse 5, which says that Paul was pressed in the spirit. Or actually, all the best manuscripts now say pressed uh, in the word. And I think uh, that's, that, that was left out of old translations because people didn't really understand it. And pressed in the spirit seemed to make sense. But the, this verse, it's vague, but it does mean one of two things. And I think it doesn't really matter which one it is because both things are true anyway. <laughs> the first thing it could mean is simply that Paul's experiences so far had left him depressed. The word pressed often has that thing, that you're hemmed in, that you can't get out, that you're, there's a weight pressing down on you. And Paul has been through some pretty rough experiences. And maybe when he got to Corinth, he was really feeling under the weather as a Christian. We prayed right at the start this morning for those who might be feeling a bit distant. And that happens sometimes in our walk with God, doesn't it? And although Paul had seen great things happening, and he'd seen uh, himself preach in Athens, the capital of the intellectual empire of the world, and people turning to faith there, maybe he was still feeling a bit bruised and battered at this point. It can happen even at our greatest moments of service for God. The other thing this could mean is that Paul's message was a source of pressure to him. And when Saul, uh, Silas and Timothy turned out, Paul was feeling so much under the pressure of the word that he had to speak out, and he spoke out so boldly that the Jews threw him out of the synagogue and he had to go next door. It could mean either of those things, but both things, it seems to me, are true. This is, this is, yeah, Alexander McLaren, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, fantastic wordsmith, tremendous expositor, wonderful guy, and of course, a Scotsman. But anyhow, um, talking about this passage, Alexander McLaren said, now notice that in the verses preceding my text, Paul's conduct is extremely abnormal, unlike his usual procedure. He goes into Corinth and he does next to nothing in evangelistic work. He repairs to the synagogue once a week and talks to the Jews there, but that is all. Such procedure makes a singular contrast to Paul's usual methods in a strange scene. And he says this, Now the reason for that lackening of impulse and comparative cessation of activity is not far to seek. The first epistle to Thessalonica was written immediately after these two brethren rejoined Paul, that's Silas and Timothy. And how does the apostle describe in that letter his feelings before he came? Well, he says to the Thessalonians about all our distress and affliction. He tells he was tortured by anxiety as to how the new converts in Thessalonica were getting on and could not forbear to try to find out whether they were still standing steadfast. So Paul was in uncertainty and turmoil. All these places he's been through throughout Europe so far. He's been thrown out of all of them. Okay, churches have been planted, but will they last? Is all of this a thorough waste of time? And uh, uh, McLaren says again in the first epistle to the Corinthians, you'll find it there, looking back to this period, he describes his feelings in similar fashion and says, I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. We've quoted that a couple of times. And if you look forward a verse or two in our chapter, you see that a vision came to Paul. This is when Jesus comes. And in this vision, um, uh, the vision presupposes some touch of fear and some temptation to silence. God would not have said, do not be afraid and hold not thy peace, but speak. Unless there had been a danger, both of Paul's being frightened and of his being dumb. So Paul wasn't in a great state, it seems to me, when Silas and Timothy turned up from Berea. And they came just at the right moment because it propelled Paul into being more active in what he was doing than he'd felt like being up till this point. But suppose it was, it's the second meaning, that Paul is pressed by the word. We know that's true of him as well, don't we? 
Again, he says to the Corinthians when he writes to them, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The reason I preach is not to get a name for myself. The reason to get to preach the gospel is not to get money from you. The reason I preach is not to make everything, oh, Paul, he's such a wonderful person. I've got to preach. God has driven me out. I cannot keep the gospel silent. The fire burns in my bones. I can't keep it in there. And so that's true about Paul as well. And the word that's used here, interestingly, is the same word that's used in 2 Corinthians 5 when Paul talks about the love of Christ constrains me, pressurizes me, pushes me out. I can't do anything else but preach. Here's a commentary on 2 Corinthians that came out a couple of years ago. And um, it talks about the word compels, which can mean hold, keep together, encircle, or help. It refers to someone whose activity has been restricted or narrowed in some way. And it says this, no doubt Paul means this word in a positive sense. Christ's love does not deter him in any negative way, but it does narrow his activity down to what advances Christ's message. That's the important thing. We think of a horse with blinders or a narrow mountain pass. There's no way you can go either direction, off to the side. You've got to keep on going. What does this mean for us sharing our faith? Well, it means this, that when we share the gospel, there are two great things that are pushing us inwards, forcing us forward with it. The first one is the, the word itself. We preach because it's true and we daren't keep it in. If something matters that much to you, you can't keep it to yourself, can you? It'd be like being one of those four beggars outside the walls of Syria who find that the enemy have left the city, the sea's been lifted, and there's all the food they can eat out there. And you look at one and you say, we don't do well. We've got to go back into the city to the people who despised us, to the people who cast us out, to the people who've got no time for us, and we need to share this news with them. There is a feast. You don't need to be in a famine in the city any longer because everything you need is right out there. And so we share it because it's true and we don't keep it in. But it's the love of Christ that hems us in as well. And so our second motivation for sharing what God has given us is this. We love people and they need it. And Paul says, the love of Christ compels me because if one person dies for all, then, as the message translation puts it, we're all in the same boat. We all need the same answer. And if we really care for other people with the love that Jesus had in dying for his enemies, for those who despised and hurt him, then we're going to have the same love propelling us to share that message with them too. So, one final thing then. Uh, we've had the two comings of uh, Paul and then uh, Silas and Timothy. Oh no, before I get there, this is G. Campbell Morgan, one of the greatest Bible expositors of the 20th century. And it's interesting that when he died, they found written in the flyleaf of his personal Bible uh, uh, four lines of verse that he'd quoted many, many times in sermons. And they're from a poem called St. Paul, in which Paul talks about how he feels when he looks out on the world and the people who need Jesus and know nothing about him. And the four lines go like this. Like this. Yeah. Then with a rush, the intolerable craving shivers throughout me like a trumpet call. Oh, to save these, to perish for their saving, die for their life offered for them all that's what drove on paul that's what drove on campbell morgan and that's the kind of spirit we need to get a little bit of if we are going to front confront our corinth because let's face it our society now it's very like corinth isn't it 
a society in which individualism matters, fulfilling your desires, living the dream. You can be anything you want to be. You just have to want it badly enough. And we live in a society in which the fulfillment of the individual is more and more important. They're never going to find that fulfillment through all of the routes that people tried in Corinth those hundreds and hundreds of years ago. They're only going to find it in Jesus. But we need to tell them that. Then the third thing is this. That, uh, uh, well, no, also, I'm still not there. Silas and Timothy came, and God met Paul's emotional needs through what happened. Paul was pressed in the spirit, but emotionally as well as physically, God supplied just what he needed. But Paul had spiritual needs as well. Was he really doing what God wanted? And so the Lord came to him. And the Lord gave him that, that uh, message in the verse that we acted out earlier on and tried to remember in the service. He said, don't be afraid. How many visions did Paul have of the Lord? We don't really know. We know about the first vision, don't we? In uh, uh, the road to Damascus. And Paul's first vision was all about turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. You need to do something different. You need to become a Christian. We know about the second vision as well, when the man from Macedonia appeared to him. And uh, this other one recorded in the book of Acts is about going somewhere else. You're going the wrong way. You're trying to get into Bithynia. You're not supposed to be there. You want to preach in Asia. I won't let you preach in Asia. Go across the sea. Go to Europe. This third vision is a bit different, though, isn't it? Paul's third vision is about stay put. Because sometimes it's not, when, you, when God says something to you, it's not going somewhere else and doing things differently. It's about fulfilling the job you've already been given. Standing fast in what God's already given you to do. And uh, God says to Paul, listen, you've had a lot of success in this city already. Lots of people left that synagogue and come next door to the Christian church. Well, keep at it. There's a lot more to come than you've seen so far. And one of the problems, I think, that bedevils Christian history is a number of people who see God use them up to a certain point and then say, ah, oh, well, that's enough. Let's go and do something different. Let's retire. Let's put our feet up. Let's have an easy life. And we can't do that. If God has put you in a certain place with a certain responsibility, you keep going. And God can do greater things through you than he's done yet. And that's basically what the Lord is saying to Paul here, isn't it? He says, look at yourself. Don't be scared. Confront your fears. Realize that your God is a great big God. You don't have anything to be scared about. And don't let your fears clam you up and keep you silent when you need to be speaking. Look at me. I am with you. Now, Paul, I've met your physical needs. I've met your emotional needs. I am now meeting your spiritual needs and giving you this vision of myself. Everything you need, you've got in me. Just go out there and use it. And third, look at the city. Look at the potential. I have many people in this city. There are lots and lots of people who are not Christians yet, but they will be in a very short space of time. You are going to build a massive, massive church, and you're going to see one of the greatest pillars of your, your, your ministry formed right here in this city. And so God meets Paul's spiritual needs. He stays on for 18 months in, in Corinth, and the church grows and grows and grows and grows. Well, you know the story of Corinth after that point. Paul writes them at least four letters, two of which we have in the New Testament. Paul keeps on in touch with them for years and years after that. All sorts of other Bible teachers, including Apollos, watch the space for next time, um, uh, come and, uh, 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 and uh, uh, minister there. And it becomes the heart of the, 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 the mission that Paul's up to in Asia, in, in, 
uh, in Europe. And uh, so we, we, we need to realize that wherever God has put us, sometimes what he wants us to do is stay there. Just exploit the full potential of what we've got. Work together for the sake of the gospel, deterred by nobody else. And see what God can do, which is greater than what he's done through us before. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. Thank you, John. Shall we stand and sing that one then? Be bold, be strong. <laughs>